to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Technology is an enabler of all kinds of activity, but how does a person actually change their behavior to use a piece of technology, let alone develop a piece of software or incorporate an automated process? There are mental hurdles involved as well as technical ones, and Zoe Cleland has made it her mission to understand and facilitate those technological behavior changes. Zoe has both a master's and a PhD in human factors and experimental technology. And today she serves as the vice president product and experience at Nintex, a company which helps businesses around the world automate some of their most sophisticated processes. On this episode of Future of Tech, Zoe dives into the world of mental models and why they are critical to consider when building, introducing and helping customers adopt new technology like low code, no code, RPA or anything else. Technology like low and no code are all about bringing solutions to the table. And when you know to design the product and the adoption process to highlight that idea, Zoe says you are more likely to succeed in your pursuits. She explains all of that and more, including the rise of RPA, AI and ML. And she highlights the areas CIOs should focus on when they are embarking on a digital transformation process. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So Zoe, I'd like to welcome you to a, a new uh, episode of Future of Tech. Today we are hosting uh, Zoe Cleland. Um, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, perfect. And as you uh, and you just said, it's your first uh, your first podcast. We're going to make it very easy for you and uh, and also for us. And uh, have fun together in the next hour or so. Perfect. Great. Let's start from the beginning, Some, something that I read in your background. You have a PhD in, in uh, human factors and experimental psychology. And I was wondering, how does a psychologist find its way into uh, technology? It was a, it was a winding road. I, I don't think this is where I expected to end up. But when I look at it, I think it makes a little more sense um, than maybe I originally thought. In Canada, we actually have some, and I don't know if it's like this in the U.S. now, but we have a lot of different areas and disciplines that you can get into in your undergrad years. And so I took a human factors class and it was based out of the engineering department and it just changed everything. The the power of human factors from my perspective is it's half psychology really understanding human cognition, perception, what the body can do, what the mind can do, how humans learn, um, and then half engineering so that you understand how to design systems that meet those requirements of of the users. And that was it for me. And as soon as I, I came across that discipline, I decided to focus there. And that's uh, where I, I pursued uh, my, my PhD. 
And my goal at that time was to design medical systems, medical facilities. I was really engaged with the um, gerontology and neurologically commu- neurological community there. And that's where I did most of my internships through um, grad school, working on Huntington's and Parkinson's patients, understanding balance and cognitive issues and how to design systems for them. So, you know, something that I always think of as, as you know, one of those moments where I just knew I was doing the right thing was, you know, as you understand how people with dementia see the world around them, it starts to give a lot of opportunity for how you do something like a facility design for, say, an aged community where, you know, in, you know, you've got the sundowners who get up and try to head out and do their business at 10 at night. And that can be very emotional and upsetting. But if you put a stop sign on a door, that executive function kicks in all of a sudden and they stop and they don't leave. And if you've got dark tiles in front of a door, that looks like a hole to them and they're not going to walk through it. And I started to see all of these ways that you could manipulate design to really map to what a human needed at any given point. And so started out very focused there. My, my early career was at Philips uh, Medical doing ultrasound system design and working with the ultrasound engineers. And, you know, it's just slow. It's uh, the life cycle of an ultrasound is seven years, um, you know, working with clinical trials and safety and those sorts of things. As much as I loved the medical aspect and, and certainly the human aspect of understanding what patients needed, what doctors needed, what nurses needed, what administrators needed, it just was very slow paced. And so I rather quickly made a pivot into tech in about 2005 and just never looked back. And when you moved to tech, what was your uh, direction then? What did you do? It was really to take the, you know, again, that power of human factors is that you don't come out of that saying, knowing necessarily that there is one area you're going to specialize in. I was interested in gerontology. I was interested in facility design. I was interested in accident investigations. I thought about going to build airplanes at Boeing. I you know, the, the magic of that discipline is you can take that skill set anywhere. And so what I realized is I love the intricacy of understanding the humans behind those products and the solutions and what the actual goals were, but I didn't need it to take seven years. And that if you are focused on that person and understanding who they are and what they need, that applies everywhere, including software. And so when I first, um, you know, from ultrasound, I moved to medical records little bit faster, but same sort of, you know, electronic medical records, same sort of slow pace. And then I went, I think my first foray was at a a little company in Bellevue. It wasn't very little at the time um, called Infospace. And if you remember in the early days of mobile phones, when you would buy ringtones and graphics, right? Remember you spend $5 on ringtones or I would, we, we were designing a site, um, a website to um, offer that. And I was able to do the design in a month and we had the entire project up and running in a little over eight weeks. That was the, the clincher for me where I just realized that wanting to understand the true problems and be able to make changes in the environment or in the systems around people that had a very direct impact, but doing it really quickly. And it, it, it did seem just like magic to me how quickly you could change a website and change behavior and drive revenue. It was, uh, it was a big light bulb moment. Great. And, and, and then you uh, walk your way in the industry, always uh, centered around the human behavior? 
always everything that I did. And my, you know, after Infospace, I moved to a, a small company. And again, <laughs> very huge at the time in terms of traffic called White Pages. And I came in at the director level leading product and user experience, which I didn't know what I was doing. That was all new to me. <laughs> but what I love about the evolution is that the market and the people using that stuff tell you what they will and won't tolerate, right? And the ad supported model has evolved a lot. Um, how people look for information has evolved a lot and what their needs are has changed. And I think I also sort of love watching that happen, the rise and fall of companies, because it means something significant about what, what the humans of the world really are looking for. So can you give me a few examples about how you tie in human psychology with technology? How the two of them interact? You know, my perspective is that there is more than just the code and there is more than just the business. There is a set of emotions and expectations um, that come from, from everyone that is touched by software. And they're very different, right? I'm not a, I suppose you could say I'm a technologist, but I'm not a, I'm not a technology expert. I've never written a line of code. I don't get excited by that sort of thing. But what I do get excited about is understanding a very specific expectation of a customer that I wouldn't have understood if I just looked at the surface. And being able to go and understand what that person really wants changes how you approach building product completely. Right. And so my mantra, you know, now more than ever is, guys, it's not about the tech. It doesn't matter. You can ship all the code in the world. If you don't understand how it's going to land and what someone's expecting, it's not going to work. And likewise, without a team that, you know, both on the user experience side, focusing on the customer and the product management side, focusing on the business needs, it, it doesn't work. You know, I think if I can give you an example that was most stark to me, it was coming into an e-commerce company several years ago, and they had just done a revamp of their shopping cart and their checkout process. And the week they had, they had rolled it out the week prior. And when I got there, their conversion rate had dropped 30%, which is unheard of, right? We sweat over a couple points change day to day in the e-commerce world. So I was, well, how did this happen? What happened? And what happened was that this amazing, wonderful, highly skilled group of user experience folks designed the best, most intuitive checkout process ever. But guess what? Intuitive design does not equal revenue or conversion, right? If you don't understand why someone is coming to buy shoes, right? That's not a necessity in my world. If you saw my shoes, you would know why I say that. Okay. They're not running shoes, right? Those are stilettos and ridiculous work boots with four inch heels for reasons I don't know. But the idea is, is that unless you understand um, the difference between highly usable and um, highly converting, and both of those things are pushing on each other, it won't be successful because the truth is, yes, of course, somebody wants to know all the shipping details. And yes, of course, they want to know the taxes and everything else that is going to come with that purchase. But it is a balance because that's just how revenue works. And when you understand that people are shopping for a lot more reasons than I need shoes to wear out in the world, right? It's an expression. It's a comfort. It's whatever those things are. That is what drives a change. And we were able to turn that around entirely and recoup all of the uh, revenue that we had lost by melding those two disciplines. And that, that to me just was the, the highlight example of why it's so critical 
to have both of those teams and those skill sets pushing for the hardest thing, but landing on a balance. So this is a perfect example, and thank you for sharing. But can you really illustrate in what ways you were able to change the conversion rate? In what, what areas did you change in the mindset of a pure technological perfect solution, making it more relevant to the um, human aspects? You know, I'm probably going to overuse this term, um, but it was about finding the mental model. So mental model is not a truth, right? It is a framework that each of us have in our brains about how something works. We're passionate about it. We believe it, right? And that can be anything, whether it's one of the examples that I always laugh about is the, maybe you know folks like this in your life, when they're cold, they don't just turn the heat up to 72. They're going to turn the heat up to 85, thinking that the room gets warmer faster. And it doesn't. That's not how that works anymore, right? We don't shovel coal in to create heat, but that mental model persists today. And I see it all the time when someone comes into a conference room and cranks the heater and you're like, what, why? Because that is their mental model. And so when we looked at this conversion problem at that company, the first thing we did was assess the mental model. Why did you buy shoes today? Why do you think you're going to buy shoes tomorrow? How were you feeling when you did that? What did you feel like after you did that? What was your expectation, right? And again, what we found is it wasn't like, I need to buy a bag of potatoes because I'm starving or I need shoes because I need to go outside. It wasn't that. It was self-care. It was a reward. It was trying to get your kids all ready for school. All of those things were emotional. And so instead of just understanding what's easy, Instead of just listening to what the user says they need, you understand why they need it. And then in that case, we were able to look at, well, what would the optimum happy path flow be for the business to maximize revenue? And what would the happy path flow be for the customer to really get that reward they're looking for? And we overlay those and we test the heck out of it, right? And really pay attention. I think we even were running A-B tests at that point in time to really get tight on what that looked like. Without that effort, they had already shown where it would landed, right? Which was not in a good place. And I would argue if it was just completely technology driven, you would have had the same problem. So the mental model is really the linchpin around everything that, that I do in the business world and in the technology world. You mentioned earlier the fact, or you shared with us an example of what, you know, an end result that you needed to fix. How do you make sure that uh, from the get-go, you're doing it in the right uh, way instead of, you know, fixing it at the end? So What's your kind of, uh, what needs to be done on a product management level when it goes to uh, the human factor? It's a really good question. And we use the jobs to be done paradigm here a lot because we've all built things where at the end of it, no one really knows what it was supposed to be for, right? We got excited about the technology or user demanded a solution and we didn't actually understand the problem. And so the idea is that the way I think about it is that you do understand the job to be done. So what is someone doing today to try to solve a problem? And is it efficient? Is it not efficient? Why are they doing it? What action are they going to take after that? How they feel about it? All of those things, right? And so there's sort of that exploration piece. And I tend to, you know, I didn't invent the you know, product management process, but I tend to have a phase of exploration at the beginning where you say, this is the job to be done. These are the people, and this is a deep understanding of the people who are involved. And these are some of the solutions, right? But you have that exploration kind of in-house across the UX, the product, the development, the stakeholder teams. How does that feel to everybody? 
and then you validate the heck out of it. And I think the bit that I've learned is, is being very specific because as soon as I say to, to especially a, a leadership team, who's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. We've got stuff to, to release here. Oh, I just need to do a little bit of research. That's scary. That sounds like it's going to take a long time. That sounds, that sounds like things could really go off the rails, but it's literally two weeks, right? And we go out and we talk to customers at a true needs analysis level more than anything else. What do you need? Why do you need that? What if you don't have that? What do you do instead? And so when you come back, you have this big vision that the company has, but you layer on top of it that customer perspective and that mental model, right? And so now you've got a pretty validated set of um, criteria with which to go forward. That's when the project teams start digging in. So then you get to the case of like, what are the most important use cases to solve first? right? Is there only one persona type or are there more than that? What are the downstream effects? What are, the, what are our own technical constraints? And so you have those conversations and scope and rescope and be sketching and, and, you know, ideating wherever you can until you have something that everyone feels is going to serve that user for that job to be done in a different, better way than it is before and that they're going to be satisfied with. And then of course you just continue to follow up and iterate the more feedback that you get on that. Yep. When, when you're looking at your current role in a company that is dealing with the no code kind of things, how do you, uh, how did you jump from what we just discussed into a low code company? Do you see a correlation between the two of them or it's a career move like the other move that you've made and, and uh, you know, it's a new experiment? Frankly, I didn't know much about Nintex before I joined and I certainly wasn't thinking about low code as like an interesting space. I have always had a little bit of a bee in my bonnet about business to business and SaaS services where I felt that it was full of buzzwords. It was overly worshiping uh, technologists. It was really um, something that needed to be reevaluated. And that's what got me excited about it. It's like, what if we made this about the business user? What if I didn't need to know how to code and I could be successful? What if someone understood the actual problems I had in my business and could talk to me about them without saying the word Kubernetes or JavaScript, right? And that just... I, like I said, I didn't know what that was going to look like. And it was just really exciting for me. And I, I just jumped in with both feet. So let me just clarify as a side note that in this podcast, we love technologists. We love to say Kubernetes three times at least. And, and, and the people who are listening to us should not be ashamed of them, uh, you know, coming to hear this podcast. But other than that, we, should, <laughs> we can continue now. Um, so... As you, uh, you're already in the field, what's, what's your impression about, or how can you define low-code, no-code? Well, yeah, and it's a, you know, just the fact that we have to call it low-code, no-code, I think gives you a little insight into that no-code is, is actually sort of the exception, I would say. Um, you can do lots of things with drag and drop, kind of the old WYSIWYG terminology, but the way that I think about it is that it has to be a mixture of really heavy power for those IT and more technical users and high, high intuitive usability across the board. And so what the way I describe it internally is powerful for technical teams, empowering for departments and users. Nintex is a great example in the workflow. Again, that can get quite sophisticated and, and quite powerful, but 
the low code, no code approach allows someone like me who doesn't know how to, how to code. I don't have, you know, software engineering skills in that capacity to come in and go pretty far and make a lot of changes and leverage those tools for my own use, right? If something gets to the point where I'm connecting to AD and I need to push something to SQL and I'll go ahead and pull in my, my IT team. But the idea that I am empowered as far as my skills can take me to find some solution in the tooling is what low code, no code means to me. And so not, it's not just that it's simple, although in many cases it is, right? There's a lot of tools out there that are, you know, most of the apps we use personally are no code, obviously. But the idea that I, I have the option as a user to have a, a nice on-ramp with a reasonable learning curve that meets me where I am, right? Doesn't push me to the point where I get uncomfortable with the technology or I'm seeing things I don't understand. Taking that and coupling it with someone who does have all of those skills, being able to access the tools and details that they need to take it further. And to me, that's, that is the blending that, that is most unique in all of that. So in your vision, uh, low-code is the way to make business people into developers? No, but I know why you think that. I don't think most people need to be developers. And I think that is the mind shift is that, and again, part of this, and I don't want to upset any of your, your technologists here, but part of this is truly that not everything is about development right? It's about creating value through solutions. And so I don't, I don't need someone to, to be a developer. I need them to be able to use a tool that gets them a solution. Now, I'm being a little tongue in cheek because I know obviously it's, you know, the construct is the same in terms of like the citizen developer and I will use that. But I think actually the challenge that I give to my teams and to the business is why is it even a citizen developer? Because it, it's not about development. It's about creating solutions with, its, with or without code that you need at the right time based on your skills. So, you know, in one way, yes, it, the, the citizen development thing or shadow IT, that's part of it. But I think that leaves an undercurrent for those folks who are just business users who still think that's not for me. And that is not true. You know, the most powerful example of this is when we acquired ProMap several years ago. And, um, you know, we had been a very engineering led, very technical company on the Nintech side and ProMap is about process management. And so those are business leads, they're process champions, centers of excellence. They are not developers in any way. And when I started talking to them to understand that mental model, again, which we do after all of our acquisitions, it was clear to me that if we kept pushing this developer, like, you can, no, no, we make it easy enough that you too can be this citizen developer. They just shrunk away. That's not what they wanted to hear. It was um, emotionally felt very uh, overwhelming. It felt that we weren't listening to them and what they were doing and what they needed. And it was the starkest contrast to me about how everything changes from that model, because it was clear to me that I was never going to get them interested in the wider Nintex platform if we kept talking about it the way we were talking about it, right? Even the, the low code, no code, even that, they would be like code, code, abort, alert, right? Just completely flip out about it. And, and the reality was when we started saying like, you know what, what do you care about? I like, well, I, I, I care about things being done right. And I care about continually improving my processes. And I know that one day those processes will get automated, but I don't think that's on me. And, and I don't, I don't want to be held responsible for that. So we could come in and say, but you know what is on you as the expert in this field, as the subject matter expert, 
is to tell us what the right process is so that it's correct by the time it gets automated. Can we agree on that? And they were like, yes, that is exactly what we do. That is exactly right. And so we built our product plan and our strategy for ProMap based on that, right? Where they can go in and they have a process and there's literally a one click to ask somebody to do the automation. But you have already put all of the things that you know into that process, into the stakeholders, into the people, into the order, the priority, all of that. And so then it can just be, all right, now I get this person to help me finish this out. Rather than everything starting from a technology-based conversation, we let everyone find a way to the solutions that technology supports, even if they're not the ones who are doing the actual building. Now, this field of uh, low-code, no-code is becoming very crowded lately. So in what way you're different? Um, everybody's uh, designing solutions. Everybody have their own, you know, uh, unique uh, values. So what, what differentiates you guys? I think there's probably two, two core components. Um, the first being a breadth play. Right. And you can see that in we started out with workflow and forms and, you know, then we added document generation and then we added process management and then we added um, RPA. And what we're finding is if you are focused on a single technology or as a customer, you have a single technology, that's your hammer. Right. And you will hit everything with that piece of technology. Sometimes that's right. And sometimes that's definitely not right. And so the first is the, the breadth of the tooling where, you know, the, the way that I talk about the, the journey to transformation and, and digital transformation is another one of those words that is incredibly um, overused. But to me, that's not some big, oh, Microsoft invented the cloud. No, it's that small business who needs to um, automate their time off requests. That is a transformation that is significant to your business. And I'm going to need a bunch of different tools to do that. But the way that I always come forward from the Nintex way perspective on digital transformation is the tooling is one piece of the journey, right? The first part, understand your problem space. What is going on here and what do you need to fix? It doesn't matter if it's small or big. Who are the people involved? You talk to those people, right? Those are your stakeholders. Those are your customers. What do they need? What do they hate right now? Then you go ahead and figure out how it should work, right? So that's the process definition part of it. There is no point in automating something that is done poorly, right? Now you just get more half-baked work much faster. And, and so then the, the, once those three things are done, then you get into selecting the right tooling. And, and that's really the difference there is now you've got a toolkit, right? And I don't want to devalue what we do or what anyone does by calling it a tool, but I think of it as a big box of Legos, And you can build all sorts of things with these different bits of tools and these different pieces. Sometimes it's RPA, sometimes it's doc gen, sometimes it's, you know, whatever. And that allows you a lot more flexibility to serve the wider business from, from my perspective. So I would say that's, that's one of them is, is the, the breadth. The other is empowering the business user. Because again, even traditionally at Nintex, we have sold into IT teams. Okay, that's who pays the bills, that's who buys it. But that also creates that sort of siloed perception that the business doesn't have a part in this or they have to ask to get attention or they're in a queue of what's important to them. And I think that tide is really turning right now where, you know, the business folks are starting to realize that that's not super efficient. And the, the IT teams are like, man, if we could be more in step, this would be much easier for us as well. And so I feel like there's a bit of a reckoning there over the past several years. 
And I think we're really plugging into that where there's lots of things that we continue to sell into our IT teams, of course, but there's lots that needs to involve the business and the wider story you can tell. Now you're not coming into just an IT team to sell or you're coming into a department. You're coming in at the CIO level, giving a story about how the business can change with this set of tools and capabilities. And so that's a real shift for us. And I think it's one of the things that sets us apart from some of the other uh, low-code, no-code players. So let me piggyback on, on your last sentence. You mentioned you're going to the CIO and you're uh, pitching something to him. Let's assume this CIO didn't hear you yet, and yet he had the, the pleasure of hearing this podcast, and, and he is now interested in, in understanding what, what are the first steps that he should make. What are the uh, areas that he should focus on? So what would be your recommendation? For selecting a vendor or for starting, for starting his transformation exactly, journey? Exactly, for starting his transformation journey. It is getting a sense of where your bottlenecks are. And it is okay to start with the proverbial low-hanging fruit. I think in many cases, when people start these efforts, they think they have to have a huge effort and teams and, and you don't. That's the, that's the truth of it. And so... If you can get a sense from the business, and there's lots of tools that do this, um, not our tooling, but basically you can get a, a vibe on each department where they think their, business, their biggest bottlenecks are and where they see efficiencies that are really dragging them down. And you get a list of what those look like by department, right? And you can score them and you can discuss them and you can do whatever. But the goal is you pick a couple, pick one. And I always say, start small, pick one thing that is important for you to fix you know, maybe it's automating your uh, non-disclosure agreements, right? So that's a combination of workflow and doc gen, e-signature, those sorts of things. And you do that. And if you do it right, meaning you understand the problem as it stands today, you make sure the people who are involved get a say in how it gets solved. You optimize where you can and you get it out the door and you open it up for feedback, which is literally the most critical part. I can't stress that enough. If you just are pushing out solutions and people don't have a chance to say where they could be better, you're not going to get the buy-in. You're not going to get the growth. And what you need is the whole company pushing behind you, trying to make those things better, right? In a governed, manageable way, but it's not any one person's job to do that. So you do that once and people start to realize they do have a say that their thoughts and their actions and their inputs do matter. And that if something isn't right the first time, they can come back in and make it better through continuous improvement and feedback. You are 80% of the way through getting buy-off from your teams, right? And it's a small thing, but it starts and it grows from there and you just rinse and repeat. You've mentioned RPA, you mentioned automation. So does uh, involving low-code, no-code means also reducing the manpower? Well, it can. I think it depends. I think of it more as optimizing the manpower and or person power. The idea there is that every human has skills. And one of the things we say in our product team is humans have better things to do. That is our mantra at Nintex. And what I mean by that is that software works for us. We don't work for the software, right? And I think that that's, that is part of the, the problem is you know, being able to um, really give people a place that they can, they can drive that success. So more in optimization, I would say, for person power so that people can use the skills you hired them for. They're not spending all of their time 
trying to figure out how to make a system work for them or doing duplicate work, right? And so I think, again, when you base your decisions on the fact that humans have other things they need to do and the software is to free them up to use those big brains to do those things, that's the, that is what the decision difference is, right? Is it's not about getting rid of people. It's about allowing those people to do what you hired them to do rather than fighting with software or multiple systems to keep up. Now, um, do you inject in some way or form AI into uh, your products? We do, we do. And we've started a more significant effort there. We rebuilt um, our analytics platform and actually it just, it just went out this month where we really went for scale you know we didn't invent anything new there but really adopted a big data mentality so that you know certainly fully secure where there's no pii or anything sensitive coming through but we can start aggregating all of that data one of the you know the similar challenges here is that everyone will say we got to do some ai we got to get some ml in there and and again that's just not the way i would approach it let's find a problem Let's understand how we want to fix that and let's leverage the tools we have, whether that's artificial intelligence or something else. So a good example of where we've used it that I think was, was perfect is when I talked about ProMap being very uncomfortable with the technical part of automation. And so in that experience, I, I was sharing earlier where they, they push a button. Basically, it takes the process that they had written out And it uses machine learning to grab the keywords in those tasks and those activities and translate those into an action on the Nintex workflow cloud. And so what you get from that is a page full of tasks and activities that were written out in readable English, normal human language. And it comes out the other side in a big workflow map that knows why you're saying certain words, where things need to get assigned to, what the next step is based on some of the nuances that the machine learning can pick up. And so I feel like that was one of those where it was much more organic, where we had a problem to be solved, which is bridging the gap between the process excellence business users and the technical resources. And so that was the perfect place for something like that to fit in. Now, Obviously, we need to have one question about COVID. How did COVID, uh, if at all, affected your business? It affected our business great, greatly. And, um, you know, thankfully, uh, in, in a rather positive way, certainly, you know, everyone's revenue was adjusted out, but that is, that is fair. The pieces that we found that were really fascinating were there were customers who already had Nintex tooling. So our, our uh, Nintex automation platform and really just called us up and said, holy smokes, we're in trouble here. W- what do we do? How can you help us? So the urgency came and I always, you know, it's, it's obvious, especially these days that that desperation breeds some innovation. So the things that you were kind of putting on the back burner is maybe not the most important while your staff cart starts getting sick or they're at home and they've got kids and school and a hundred other things. And so that productivity changes it lit a fire under those businesses, I would say for certain. And so that started really driving some momentum. But the other place that there was a, a, a boom of interest is around everything that the globe needs to do to try to manage the pandemic. So having visitors um, at a facility, right, a museum or, you know, a port of entry or whatever that looks like, right? 
being able to track them in a, you know, and no one likes the contact tracing and no one likes to give all this information, but how do you do that in a way that is safe and consistent and predictable and can be collated into a single source for those businesses? You know, again, in Singapore, which is a, you know, a, you know smaller area for sure, but they're using Nintex to make sure that if there is an outbreak, they can track where, where folks were and w- where they may have been exposed. And at the national level, they can reach out and, you know, offer assistance and check in and testing and all of those things. And so, you know, those are new use cases that have happened, but it really, to me, it's just a, you know, that, that desperation of a a very important moment driving a lot of change and having people really have to kind of take a leap of faith that this investment is going to do what they, they expect it to do. Great. Now let's speak a bit about the future. So where do you see the future of workflow automation? I think it, I think it continues to go wide where it's not just about workflow anymore, but it's encompassing, you know, all of the things we talked about plus process mining, plus OCR, plus, 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 right? Is that it continues to get wider so that you've got this big toolbox. The other thing that probably will not surprise you at all is I think it is going to continue to be more relevant to the business user um, and the non-technical user, right? And whether that's citizen development or low code, no code, the point is, is that they have a seat at the table because the more people that are talking and the more brains that are focused on the problem, the better your outcomes are going to be. And I really see that starting to shift a lot more, even just in the last five years, I would say, where it was always where automation was kind of housed with IT and they kind of held the keys to that. And you could ask for things, but you didn't have the same seat at the table necessarily as you might have wanted. And as you open that up, what it does for a business is now, you know, IT knows a lot of things and they have a very good understanding of where there's bottlenecks in the things that they're aware of. So let's say they've got a hundred processes that they want to make better and they want to automate and, and roll out as solutions. But if you look at the larger business, they probably have a thousand or 10,000 of those, right? Which may or may not be just as important as, as the ones that IT is aware of. And so really democratizing the access to those solutions and the power that each of us has to drive that change in the business in a really effective way is, is what I hope we keep, we keep heading towards. It looks like it to me that, that we're, we're headed down that path. And I think it's, I think it's healthy. Right. I'd like to take you into some of the experience that you gained through the years and maybe share with us, um, not necessarily a mistake, but a big no-no when it comes to uh, user experience. What, what is something that everybody should avoid when, when looking into uh, this field? User experience is not UI. That's the first thing to know. It's not graphic design, right? And I think that there's a, a lot of overlap right now where in many cases, the folks who, who end up in user experience roles have a graphical background or industrial design, and that's valuable. No question about it. But don't confuse the user interface, right? And the colors and the brand and all of that with that mental model of the human being behind it. And that, to me, every time I have seen big fails on projects, whether I was a part of them or not, it was because we missed that understanding. And either we didn't go deep enough to sort those things out, or we didn't suss out the technology correctly that would meet the mental model. And so both of those things led us down a path where it can be a beautiful design, but if, if it is not meeting the expectations of the user, it's not going to work. And I, I have to say that, that that's probably the biggest gap in, in a lot of the development cycles is, is not having a clear understanding of 
humans have better things to do, right? They make us or break us. And the more we move to the cloud and apps and everything else, it's not like on-prem or mainframes where they're stuck with you, right? As a vendor, it's not like that anymore. And so if they're not happy and they're not getting what they need as that, as that customer who has expectations and a very specific need, which might be very different from their next door neighbor who's using the same thing as well, you are not going to have a successful launch out of the gate. Yeah. And uh, one personal question. So many years back, uh, you were a student in Canada and, and you took a different path and you moved into the technology domain. Are you happy with this move? I'm so happy. And I would not have thought that. And, I, and you know, if, if, if we're sharing here, I will say, um, you know, early on, I felt um, that I had to defend what I'm doing here, right? You're not a developer. You're not a, you know, and, and what I was able to do is sort of flip that around and say, I'm not, but that's why you're here, right? So you're here to tell me how this works and how this should work and what the greatest, best way we could implement this is. And I'm here to represent all of these customers who are counting on you to make this work in the way that they want. And once I kind of came to terms with that, where it's more, it's more than any one thing, I think it just, it, you know, it changed how I looked at the world and it changed where I saw my place in this industry as a real partner, bringing a different perspective that I know is critical and that I've proven over and over and over again, if not me personally, but all of the folks who are doing the good work that, that we're all doing that this is a path that makes such an incredible difference and, and gives you a different view and drives that success where maybe you didn't think you could have it before. Great. So with this happy note, uh, for me, it was the first, you know, for you, it was your first uh, podcast. And for me, it was the first time I actually saw someone who paid $5 for a ringtone. So uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. You know me, you know me quite well. This, this, there's not much else you need to know. Un inappropriate shoes and very expensive mobile accessories. Okay. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you for being with us. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to meet face to face in the future. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly on LinkedIn.